tonight, like many other of these kinds of studies, is going to be a little bit like drinking from a fire hose. Hallelujah. Um, we'll do lists of scriptures like we normally do, but not nearly as many. There are some really broad, big uh, concepts that we want to get to you so that some of the more important details that you would otherwise miss in the chapter, you won't miss. And uh, that requires us to go as wide as an entire agricultural schedule to understand the singular verse. And uh, we're going to do those kind of things a lot. And um, with, with a little bit of prayer, hopefully it will be understandable to all and uh, enrich your understanding of this kind of... Uh, Redemption through romance that we're looking at. Uh, I'm excited. Uh, Let's pray, and we'll get Jen ready to read uh, chapter 2. I have a couple more thoughts for you as we read the chapter, and then uh, then we'll hop right in. So who would like to pray? I am going to say that Steve Thomas got his hand up first, but Evan Bolas was pretty quick over there, you know. But I believe it was Steve. So let's pray. <laughs> Father, we come before you tonight, Lord God. We come before you for your word, Lord God. Lord, we desire to know the hidden things, Father, the hidden manna that you have provided for us. Lord, that your spirit would open our eyes and see you, Lord God. Father, that you would testify to the truth in your word in this place, mighty God. That we would grow in you, mighty God. That men and women that we encounter, Father, would be able to grow in you as well. Father, we give you the glory and the honor tonight. Would you open our eyes to the wonderful things that you Amen. Hallelujah. Before we begin reading the chapter, one of the things that I think we probably ought to do is where is Ruth in the Tanakh? Which section? And it was likely written by whom? So when you have a book that is in the writings, but is written by a prophet, much like the book of Daniel, you have, because of its section that it's in, very practical ways to handle yourself as a faithful person in the midst of sin and difficulty, in the midst of captivity. That's what the writings do. But as a prophetic book, you also have biblical patterns that are revealed that tell us about what has happened, what is happening, and what will yet happen. That makes Ruth a very important book. Um, Tonight, I would like you to, to ask the Lord to show you, as we're reading, practical things. We all love the the prophecy, and that's going to become self-evident as we go. You, if if you are born again, you will begin to see it. But the church of our day tends to look past what is practical and needs to be done now in the moment for holiness, for righteousness' sake, in the hopes of clinging to something prophetic. And of course, you will never get to the end if you cannot get through today. So we'd like to keep a healthy mixture of both. Uh, I will bounce all over the place with that tonight. I'm going to show you the larger framework, but also (coughs) point to very practical things. Things that have to do with your relationship with Jesus, your relationship with each other, your relationship with your fellow man, even your relationship with the opposite sex. This is a fantastic book. It is uh, really quite interesting. Speaking of the fairer sex... (laughs) 
my darling, would you begin reading in the first verse of chapter 2? Oh, did y'all do your homework? Yes. So you looked into the catechism of the Hebrew calendar. Oh, yeah. You uh, read about Shavuot. Yes. Did you look at Moabite gleanings and Levite leanings? Yes. Good, then you'll be uh, well prepared for tonight. Verse 1 of chapter 2, huh? Now Naomi had a relative on her husband's side from the clan of Elimelech, a man of standing who was named Boaz. And Ruth the Moabitess said to Naomi, Let me go to the fields and pick up the leftover grain behind anyone whose eyes I find favor. Naomi said to her, Go ahead, my daughter. So she went out and began to glean in the fields behind the harvesters. As it turned out, she found herself working in a field belonging to Boaz, who was the, from the clan of Elimelech. Just then, Boaz arrived from Bethlehem and greeted the harvesters. The Lord be with you. The Lord bless you, they called back. Boaz asked the foreman of his harvesters, Whose young woman is that? Oh, yeah. The foreman replied, <laughs> She is the Moabitess who came back from Moab with Naomi. She said, Please let me glean and gather among the sheaves behind the harvesters. She went into the field and has worked steadily from morning till now, except for a short rest in the shelter. So Boaz and Ruth, so Boaz said to Ruth, My daughter, listen to me. Don't go and glean in another field and don't go away from here. Stay here with my servant girls. Watch the field where the men are harvesting and follow along after the girls. I have told the men not to touch you. And wherever, whenever you are thirsty, go and get a drink from the water jars the men have filled. At this, she bowed down with her face to the ground. She explained, Why have I found such favor in your eyes that you notice me, a foreigner? Boaz replied, I've been told all about what you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband, how you have left your father and mother and your homeland and came, come to live with a people you did not know before. May the Lord repay you for what you have done. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. May I continue to find favor in your eyes, my Lord, she said. You have given me comfort and have spoken kindly to your servant, though I do not have the standing of one of your servant girls. At mealtime, Boaz said to her, Come over here, have some bread, and dip it in the wine vinegar. When she sat down with the harvester, she off he offered her some roasted grain. She ate all she wanted and had some left over. As she got up to glean, Boaz gave orders to his men, Even if she gathers among the sheaves, do not embarrass her. Rather, pull out some stalks from, for her from the bundles and leave them for her to pick up, and don't rebuke her. So Ruth gleaned in the field until evening. Then she threshed the barley she had gathered, and it amounted to about an ephah. She carried it back to town, and her mother-in-law sat, um, sat, saw how much she had gathered. Ruth also brought out and gave her what she had left over after she had eaten enough. Her mother-in-law asked her, where did you glean today? Where did you work? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. Then Ruth told her mother-in-law about the one at whose place she had been working. The name of the man I worked with today is Boaz, she said. The Lord bless him, Naomi said to her daughter-in-law. He has not stopped showing his kindness to the living and to the dead, she added. 
That man is our close relative. He is one of our kinsmen redeemers. Then Ruth the Moabitess said, He even said to me, Stay with my workers until they finish harvesting all of my grain. Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, It will be good for you, my daughter, to go with his girls, because in someone else's field you might be harmed. So Ruth stayed close to the servant girls of Boaz to glean until the barley and the wheat harvest were finished. And she lived with her mother-in-law. I love this chapter. To me, this chapter begins building suspense. If you don't know exactly what's going to happen, you have that same excitement when you notice that two people that you care about have caught each other's eye. And you're, you're a little bit scared about how that might go. You're happy. Uh, kind of like we'll all feel when Justin Linton finds somebody in In other words, I get butterflies in my chest when I read this. And uh, there is so much happening in this chapter that a casual uh, read-over doesn't do for you. I would just like to remind you that Ruth is Jewish by choice. But they're calling her a Moabitess throughout this whole thing. It takes so long to change a, a reputation. It takes so long to change an image. If you spent 20 years investing in a terrible reputation, it's not going to change in a day. The Lord can change your heart in a day, but it's going to take a while for your deeds to catch up with your heart. It's going to take even longer for people to notice your body of work has caught up with uh, the character that you profess. More Christians get discouraged because human beings don't credit them with what God credits them with immediately. And uh, I would just like you to pay attention to the humble, sweet attitude of Ruth. You know, every kindness that she's shown, she's surprised, not entitled. You know, uh, if there ever was a character in the Bible that ought to show us our place in God's prophetic plan, it's Ruth. We ought to be surprised that we would be included. Yeah. Our answers ought to be like Mephibosheth. What, a, what is your servant, a dead dog, that you would notice me? And instead, somehow or another, we become a little bit prideful and even haughty. And there's all kind of ways pride can manifest. If your feelings are easily hurt when you're not seen how you think you should be seen, what does that say about your image of yourself? It's very high, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, Ruth is a great example of an attractive female, and you are never told what she looks like. It's incredible. But if you close your eyes and you envision Ruth, you probably did not envision somebody who was hideous to look at. That's true. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to start with you with some very basic things that um, won't feel basic. Um, there are all kinds of things in the Hebrew language and the Hebrew culture that would be basic if we grew up there that are not basic to us. What advantage is there in being a Jew? Much in every way. That was the answer in Romans 9. Uh, well, we didn't receive that advantage. And most of the people running around in Christianity claiming to be Jews, you know, probably got their cotton swab mixed up with somebody else on Ancestry.com. <laughs> but it wasn't because they were raised in a Jewish home. 
And when you're raised in a Jewish home, the culture itself teaches you some things. I just want to show you like what would be very basic uh, that is mind-blowing to me. Uh, and this is compounded by the fact that we're no longer in an agricultural society. Mm -hmm. So sometimes I talk to Mr. Charlie about something and it's like, yeah, of course. Where to me it was a total revelation because I've never grown anything except my own waistline, you know? <laughs> Uh, <laughs> let's look at the catechism of the Hebrew calendar. Is that fair enough? I'm going to show you uh, on the screen some of this. Uh, who will read first? Uh, Rob, go to Genesis 1.14. <coughs> what well, you see displayed at the top of the screen, let's see if we can get it where it needs to be is the Hebrew uh, of Genesis 1.14. And Rob's going to read us the English. And God said, Let there be lights in the expanse of the sky to separate the day from the night, and let them serve as signs to mark seasons and days and years. Now when we hear that phrase, we go, okay, that's, that's good. It's the stellar realm helps us mark uh, seasons, signs, days, nights, years, right? We, we look at that and we go, okay, that's, that's great. The Hebrew says something just a little more descriptive there. And what is translated as seasons is uh, moed. And moed doesn't just, when we say season, what do you think? Oh, yeah, yeah, so it's, it means what you should expect the temperature to be, how much rainfall there may be. But moed is a noun meaning an appointed time or place. Which begs the question, appointed by whom? The one that set these stellar bodies in their place. See, God has appointed things on earth that are a witness to in the heavens. Uh, it can signify a specific appointed time and is used very often for a sacred feast or a festival. That strong symbol is 4150. You guys can have all of the fun you want doing things like paleo on that. As we talk about these signs and seasons, this word, uh, ha moyadim, that's how you would say the seasons, uh, means the appointed times. When you look for it in the Hebrew text, a body of letters, there is something called equidistant letter spacing that can come into play. To show you what equidistant letter spacing is, I borrowed this from my notes in Genesis. If you ever see the abbreviation ELS, that's one of the things that it can stand for. You can take a regular sentence, like Rips explained that each code is a case of adding every fourth letter to add a word. And if you go to the very first time that you find the first letter in what you're looking for, in this case an R, and you highlight it, and you look at the number of distance to the next letter, and you find the same di distance after the third letter, the fourth letter, the fifth letter, this is called an equidistant letter spacing, <coughs> commonly referred to as Bible codes. So between the R and the E and the A and the D, do you see how there's always three letters in between them? Yes. We're counting a skip of every four letters. In that case, after 11 sequences of four, 
you end up with a phrase that says, read the code. This is very, very elementary, right? Somebody obviously reverse engineered this. They thought through what kind of name they could use. Uh, Rips is not a common first name. But what happens when God writes something like Bereshit, the first book of the Tanakh, and it has all of the intricacies of the first book of the Tanakh, all of the divine revelation of the first book of the Tanakh, but also, just beneath the surface, there are meanings that correlate at every level. What that looks like in this case is the word that we're looking at, Hamoyadin. They looked for the very first time that its first letter appeared. And then they counted and looked for the second letter. To their surprise, between letter 1 and 2 was a skip of 70 letters. Between letter 2 and 3 was a skip of 70 letters. Between letters 3 and 4 was a skip of 70 letters. And because, uh, and so on and so forth. And because the Hebrew text is written in blocks that go from right to left, and we have an... Uh, a top of a scroll and a bottom of a scroll, they circled these letters wherever they appeared with an equal distance between each letter, and the verse that it intersects with is Genesis 1.14. So, do you understand the complexity of what I'm saying there? God encoded the word moed into the text on top of the passage, Genesis 1.14. And he did it at an interval skip of 70. Now, why is 70 important? Because the Hebrew calendar <coughs> teaches a lesson, and it's always based on 70s. If you pay attention to the Moed in the Bible, the Ha Moedim, in the next uh, serious accounting of these, we just took the book of Leviticus, okay? And I'd like to read you, or you read some of these. We'll make this bigger for everybody. Uh, so can we, I need seven volunteers. Chris, take Leviticus 23.3. Justin Linton, Leviticus 23.6. Uh, Paul Rosales, uh, Leviticus 23.21. Uh, Steve Thomas, <coughs> Leviticus 23.23. Uh, JJ, Leviticus 23.27 uh, Gabe Sutherland, Leviticus 23.33 uh, Cody, Leviticus 23.36 These are uh, instances of described Hamoedim in Leviticus 23 that form the Hebrew calendar Leviticus 23.3 there are six days when you may work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of rest, a day of sacred assembly. You are not to do any work wherever you live. It is a Sabbath to the Lord. This has been plainly stated since the first chapter of Genesis, hasn't it? By Genesis 2-2, we're told that there's a seventh day, and on the seventh day that you rest, this formed a week. Have you ever heard of a culture having a ten-day week? Yeah, me either. <laughs> not, not anywhere. Do you find that in itself bizarre? Much of the Asian cultures, whether it's uh, Vietnam or China, do you know in most of those areas they don't even have names for the day of the week? The name is one, two, three. You know where it stops? 
Seven. There is no day eight. See, God did that. God did that across the globe. But the nation that he taught it to first is Israel. What this means is that Judaism sanctifies time differently than most nations. They learn to count by sevens. It's not an acknowledgement that there are no other numbers. It's that seven was uniquely important. So as a child, one of the first things that you would learn is there are seven days in a week. That's very interesting for us because we've kind of confused it. We have five working days and two non-working days, and we call one a week and the other a weekend, giving rise to the idea that they're somehow separate. Yeah? In the Bible, there's just a week. Okay, there's a week of days, and only one of them is special. You don't get two days off in the biblical calendar. You ever wonder why you feel guilty for sleeping late now? <laughs> okay, let's take Leviticus. By the way, how many weeks are there in a year? 52. So I put out to the right. Wow. As far as a Sabbath is uh, a moed, then there are 52 of those in a year. Now let's take Leviticus 23.6. On the 15th day of that month, the Lord's Feast of Unleavened Bread begins. For seven days you must eat bread made without yeast. Now these are not seven days of Sabbath, but they are seven days of specially appointed season by God. Seven days that carried a restriction or carried a, um, uh, a special instruction. Those seven days include Passover in the Unleavened Bread Feast. You can see that in the New Testament writers. Sometimes they say Passover, sometimes they say Unleavened Bread, because they're talking about that week. The same way that you say, I'm off for Christmas, and it's not Christmas yet, you know? Uh, am I the only one that says that? No. Uh, first Fruits is also included in it because it always occurred the, the day after the Sabbath of uh, the Passover week. But that gives you seven days in that passage. Seven more ha-moyadim. Let's take Leviticus 23, 21. On that same day, you are to proclaim a sacred assembly and do no regular work. This is to be a lasting ordinance for the generations to come wherever you live. Do you know on Pentecost they were not supposed to be working? That's why everybody noticed what the disciples did uh, at Pentecost. That's... That's why it made such a commotion. God had slowed down the society to a stop. You know what else happened at Pentecost, interestingly enough? This is when the, the Torah was given at Sinai. This is when the book of Ruth is occurring. This is when King David died. By the way, all of those things were spoken about by Peter when he was preaching on Pentecost. Do you know why? Because they understood it. They, he, he wanted to reach them by the power of the Holy Ghost in uh, something they'd be familiar with. This would be akin to preaching about freedom, firecrackers, beer, and barbecue on 4th of July in Texas, you know, uh, using those as examples. But Shavuot adds another ha moyadim to the, uh, to the list. <coughs> okay, how about 23-23? Uh, the Lord said to Moses, Say to the Israelites, On the first day of the seventh month, you were to have a day of Sabbath rest, a sacred assembly for the <coughs> On the first day of the seventh month, you have something that you don't have on any of the other days of the year, a giant trumpet blast. And there's a reason for that. It's signaling something. The seventh month of the year is Tishri, 
And God wanted to draw attention to the seventh. His whole calendar does that. Everything that he does is heptatic in that way. Rosh Hashanah, who knows what that means? Head of the year. See, you would expect it to mean Feast of Trumpets, but it doesn't. That's uh, Yom Teruah. But in this case, the holiday goes down with a different name than the feast day. That's interesting, isn't it? That's because there was a calendar change in, Genesis, in Exodus. The Genesis calendar, I know everybody would already know this, right? The calendar had always started with Tishri as the first month in the year, hence head of the year or new year. But in the Exodus, God took another month of the year, which was Nisan, and he made it there first. It's like the nation was born again or got a new beginning. That reversal means that in the seventh month of their religious year, their actual year, it's also the first month of their civil year, the old calendar. You'd have to be a CPA to think like that. Huh? Okay, let's go to um, uh, Leviticus 23:27. The tenth day of the seventh month is the day of atonement. Hold a sacred assembly and deny yourselves and present an offering made to the Lord by fire. So on the tenth day of the seventh month, we get to a day where every year, year in and year out, Israel was atoned for in a single day. The whole nation, every single person. So the theologians can scratch their head and wonder how Romans eleven twenty six is true, that all Israel will be saved. But they were saved every year on the same day. God announced it in advance, and still nothing could stop it from happening. That's kind of comforting, isn't it? So we add to our total again another of the Ha Moyadin, one more day. Let's go to Leviticus twenty three thirty three. The Lord said to Moses, Say to the Israelites on the fifteenth day of the seventh month, The Lord's Feast of Tabernacles begins, and it lasts for seven days. Hold there. It lasts for seven days. In the seventh month, like the first month, there is a feast that lasts for seven days. You see God's fascination with sevens? That adds seven to our total, and in this feast we have something special. They're commemorating a time that has passed. They're commemorating the time when they used to be in temporary dwellings. A time when they followed God's Spirit in a very temporary fashion because they have now come into the land and they occupy it. They're no longer wandering. They are married to God, which is very interesting. When you add 52 to 7 to 1 to 1 to 1, and then you get to this Sukkot and add another 7, you're at 69. But that's not the end of Leviticus 23. Who has the next verse? For seven days present offerings made to the Lord by fire. And on the eighth day hold a sacred assembly and present an offering made to the Lord by fire. Hold a sacred moed and make an offering. God, for good measure, added one more day to their calendar. To symbolize the new beginnings, now that the feast schedule were over, they held one more feast, which incidentally gave them 70 appointed times every single year so that they would understand that the God of heaven, who hung the entire uh, stellar realm in place, did it so that they would know what they should do on earth. 
The Hebrew calendar requires two witnesses. We look at only the movement of the sun. They considered the movement of the earth around the sun and also the moon around the earth. And all dating required a calculation that reconciled both because everything must be established by two or more witnesses. Now, I'm not just trying to take you to Hebrew school. There's a reason for this. And we're going to go further with that. Are you all understanding what you see so far? Their calendar was heptatic in more ways than what we've just covered. It's heptatic in the sense that when you take a week of days, it constitutes a Shabbat, a Sabbath. But also, when you take a week of weeks, see, we don't do that. A week of weeks constitutes Shavuot. So they learned to count days, which gave them six days of working, one day of rest. But who counts weeks? Who does that? But they learned to count weeks because God set a special appointed day, Shavuot or Pentecost, uh, which would be at the completion of seven weeks or 49 days. Now, did you grow up counting those? I didn't either. Uh, I'll leave the scriptures there, but suffice it to say, we probably don't have time to read each of them. There is another one that you probably are not as familiar with. Let's read this. Who wants this one? Uh, Frank, take um, Leviticus 23. I'm sorry. Take Leviticus 25, 2 through 7. Our third point on the calendar was the week of months that constitute a religious year. What we just did in our previous uh, calendar was take Leviticus 23, and they tell you in the first month do this, in the second month do this, in the third month do this. What comes after third? The fourth month do this. In the the sixth and in the seventh. You know, they don't mention an eighth month, ninth month, tenth month, eleventh month, twelfth month, or the special second, twelfth month. They don't mention that. Leviticus 23 has a seven-month religious year. That's not ignoring the fact that there are other months. It simply doesn't mention what happens in them. And have you ever been stuck in no man's land? You're just not sure whether you should stay or whether you should go, what you should do. Well, that time period, interestingly enough, was a time of planting. Yeah, it's very... We'll get to that in a minute. Frank, did you make it to Leviticus 25? Yes, sir. 2 through 7? Yes. Speak to the Israelites and say to them, When you enter the land I'm going to give you, the land itself must observe a Sabbath to the Lord. For six years sow your fields... And for six years prune your vineyards and gather their crops. But in the seventh year, the land is to have a Sabbath of rest, a Sabbath to the Lord. Anybody been working seven years? Good news. Good news. You get the year off. Would that be good news for you, or would immediately you be terrified? Which would it be? It'd be good news for about half a second, and then you would go, what am I going to eat? Right. When we think of time off, we think of paid time off. Right? Well, 
Following this heptatic calendar, you start with days, and they're counted and formed into weeks. Uh, then you start with weeks, and you count numbers of weeks, and you end up with a Shavuot, a Pentecost. Uh, then you start counting months, and you end up with a religious year. Then you count years, and you end up with a sabbatical year. You didn't grow up like that, did you? Neither did I. Can you imagine when you're hiring employees what that must have been like? If the federal government passes certain laws now, it means everybody gets 38 hours, like, or 37 hours, because if you get to the 38th, you're a full-time employee and you get more benefits. You, you know what I'm saying? What must this have been like? Okay, our next one. Um, uh, Frank, are you already in Leviticus 25? Take 25, 8 through 16. Count off seven Sabbaths of the year, seven times seven years, so that the seven Sabbaths of years amount to a period of 49 years. All right. Are you already confused? Mm -hmm. I am. All right. So first, you count weeks. Uh, I'm sorry, days. And then you end up with a weekly Sabbath. <laughs> then you count weeks, and you end up with a Pentecost, a feast that comes after it. Then you count months, and you end up with a year. Then you count years, and you end up with a sabbatical year. Now we're going to count sabbatical years. And after seven sabbatical years, which makes 49 regular years, we're going to have a special year. Keep going. Then have the trumpet sounded everywhere on the tenth day of the seventh month, on the day of atonement, sound the trumpet throughout your land. Consecrate the 50th year and proclaim liberty throughout the land to all its inhabitants. It shall be a jubilee for you. Okay. The jubilee is a time period that Numbers describes and Ezekiel describes, as you can see it on the screen, as a time of freedom. A time when all land goes back to its original owner. You know, that's incredible. Uh, you, anybody live in the house your parents lived in? Nobody in here. There was a time when if you asked that question in society, most people would. Can you imagine, mom, dad, exactly what year did you acquire this house? Because <laughs> you're about to go the way of our forefathers and I want to know how much longer I've got, right? This looks more like a renting situation than a buying situation. But what this means is family lines become pretty important because every person has land that was assigned to them by Joshua and Moses. And it's supposed to always revert to them and never be away from them for more than 49 plus 1. See, our society is not set up that way, but every Jew would understand it. When I say mortgage, what number comes to mind? 30. It's funny, you, you know, you, you could have said your interest rate, you could have said your payment, but universally across the room we said 30. Do you know why? Our society tends to take 30 years to buy a home. You know how you would amateurize your loan in Israel? You'd base it on the number of crops that you had available to you before Jubilee. That's how you would amateurize it. That's it. And the Bible tells you to do that. Okay, uh, in Acts 3.21, he says, He must remain in heaven until the time comes for God to restore everything as he promised long ago through his holy prophets. I included that because 
the Jews have been counting time in a way that the rest of the world doesn't since the beginning. And since they are counting time, the most logical question that they had for Jesus before he was ascending strikes us as odd. Lord, are you at that time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? They wanted to know, based on their count, when everything was going to get set right. Okay. Peter, when preaching, says in the third chapter in the 21st verse that he will remain in heaven until the time comes for. In other words, there is a moed. There is a time appointed for this to happen. Can I say we lost count somewhere? Anybody know how many years till Jubilee? Yeah, I don't either. Every once in a while, a Bible prophecy teacher will come forward and he'll say, you know, we have two more years till the Jubilee in Israel. Well, how would he possibly know that? Well, based on these events, this is why we think it. Yeah, and you're wrong. It sells books, though. I mean, they lost count somewhere. No man knows the day or the hour. This is very interesting, isn't it? I want to get off the prophetic theme, though. When we are reading the book of Ruth, somebody read the last verse of chapter 1. So Naomi returned from Moab, accompanied by Ruth the Moabitess, her daughter-in-law, arriving in Bethlehem as the barley harvest was beginning. As the what? Barley Barley harvest. Now read the last verse of chapter 2. So Ruth stayed close to the servant girls of Boaz to glean until the barley and wheat harvests were finished. What? Barley and wheat were finished. Do you know that chapter 2 we can place perfectly in their year based on those two sentences? When you read it, I bet it never occurred to you what month it was or how long of a time span it was between them when we're reading these 23 verses. How many days is it? But you know we can know from those two statements? And that'll change the way that you read it. That's interesting, isn't it? Would you like to see the Hebrew agricultural calendar? Yeah, like what else are you going to do on a Monday night, right? So farming and feast. Let's begin to work through these together. Some of this is kind of counterintuitive, so that's why I want to teach it to you. In your farming and feast, on the agricultural calendar, during our March or April, we have their first month of the year which most of the time in the Bible is called Nisan, but occasionally is referred to by an older name, which was Abib. So what is their first month of the year? Nisan. Nisan. Now, on the farming calendar, this forms the time period that the prophets refer to and Israelite farmers refer to as latter rains. Does anybody see the contradiction there? Help me. Somebody besides Matthew. He's a pastor. What is wrong with the first month of the year and the latter rains? How do we have the latter? The switch. Half the rooms never read a King James Bible. Like, what are the latter means later? (laughs) How do you have later rains in the first month? Because it wasn't the first month. It was originally. The seventh month. The seventh month became the first, and the first became the seventh. There was a change in the calendar. The whole orientation of appointed times changed as soon as Israel got born again. Can I tell you whatever your destiny was while you were lost? As soon as you got born again, it changed. The way you relate to the world changed. 
If you're like me, the first time you wrote the date, you might have started to cry. Whereas you had written it many times before, after being born again, you realized for the first time you were numbering the years since Jesus visited the earth. You know? I mean, little... Maybe y'all didn't have that. I don't know. I got in the car and REO Speedwagon was singing about Jesus. I mean, everything that happened had significance, right? Okay, your latter rains... The second major rainy season is actually in their first month of the year. And it is when the barley harvest begins and the flax harvest begins. So when you are reading about Passover or unleavened bread or first fruits, they're all occurring in the first month of the year. It is a kind of uh, rainy springtime and it is the beginning of a barley harvest. The latter rains help the crops mature. The second rainy season helps the crops mature right before they're harvested. It's just like us to want to start at the end, isn't it? (coughs) Moving forward. In the Hebrew month called Ayar, uh, once or twice in the Bible called Ziv, which occurs in April or May, our time, um, This is a dry season, and during the dry season, uh, obviously, not raining. There's uh, just the harvest (coughs) continuing. Then when we move to what is our May or June, the month of Savan, this is their third month of the year, and it's when Shavuot occurs. Figs begin to ripen, and they start tending their vines during this time. This is 50 days, Shavuot is 50 days, or seven weeks after first fruits. You know what is amazing about this? This is when we have the barley harvest and the wheat harvest completing. You know what that means? Boaz met Ruth. The story begins with... um, Uh, a harvest scene and barley harvest beginning when they come to town. They come to town at Pentecost. I'm sorry, at Passover. They come to town when Israel should be covering their, their doors in the blood of the Lamb. They, you have to picture two Jewish women having to do that themselves. You know, Not having a man there to do it. Uh, looking at their loss and how the angel of death did not seem to pass over them. Right? Then when they go out into the fields, they're seeing the first sign of a barley harvest. And a wheat is, is to come later. And it is somewhere between being saved, Passover, and being filled with the Holy Ghost and receiving Torah at Sinai that they're going to encounter Boaz. Doesn't that change the setting as you're reading it just a little bit? Yes. Man, what was the time period in your life like between getting saved and getting filled with the Holy Ghost. You know, it was interesting for me. It was full of life, but it was also full of controversy as I tried to figure this out. Full of um, concern and wanting to get it right. And all happy was the day that that was settled in me. You know? God is building a love story in the backdrop of lots of other events. As we look at this, we move on from... Uh, oh, I made a note out here for us. 
Ruth's interaction with Boaz had to begin around Passover, which was the beginning of the barley harvest, and end around Shavuot, in which barley was complete and wheat was in its final stages. You get that from the two verses that we read just earlier. Just so that you know what the rest of the calendar is uh, for fun, and then we'll keep going. Uh, In the month of Tammuz, which is our summer, um, you are finishing your wheat harvest all together. You have the first ripe grapes from the earlier tending of the vines. In the um, month of Av, sometimes called Ab in the Bible, which relates to our July or August, this is when you harvest your grapes. You begin harvesting them then, and uh, it ends in October. Why is that interesting? Have you ever seen the biblical imagery of Jesus treading out the wine press alone? You ever uh, uh, read Revelation 14? Ever read the 60s uh, in Isaiah and find the imagery of him splattered with blood like somebody who is treading out grapes? The ninth of Av is when everything bad that has ever happened to the Jewish nation has happened. And it's during grape harvest. That imagery is, is right there. If you don't have refrigeration, by the way, and you harvest your grapes in summer, um, how do you have grape juice at the communion dinner in April of the next year? You don't. You can't do it uh, at the Passover meal in April. Uh, You get to the sixth month of the year, which is our August or September, and that's when you see figs. When you get to the seventh month, which is Tishri, once or twice in the Bible called Ethanim, you need to remember that Tishri is the first month on the Genesis calendar, which is why it's called Rosh Hashanah, or why the first feast is Rosh Hashanah. But it's the seventh month after Exodus 12 in history. This is when the early rains come. Hence, they're called early since it was their first month. During this time, you had an announcement trumpets, Rosh Hashanah. You had an atonement, Yom Kippur. And you had Sukkot, which was to symbolize salvation for the world. It's kind of funny that we might should start there and then end up uh, at Passover, huh? (laughs) We blow the trumpet that there is salvation. We teach what atonement is. We talk about our need to follow the leading of the Lord because we're in a desert. And then we could arrive at Passover. But we, we started Passover and arrived here. Everything is uh, a matter of perspective, isn't it? As we move forward, when you're thinking about the book of Ruth, you need the feast to be the backdrop. You need to recognize we're in the time period of the judges. We're probably in Gideon's lifespan. Israel's been completely uh, unfaithful, and these girls have suffered mightily for it. And that was the time period that Ruth decides to become a Jew by choice and not by birth. Tell me that people can't get saved in tribulation. Ruth did. Okay. Patterns of rehearsal, prophecy, no, we'll leave it, and the miraculous. Um, Let me hand out scriptures and then we'll come back to it. So, uh, Judah, take Leviticus 23, 1 through 2. 
I'm sorry, Wade. Might as well just leave it. I'm trying to make it difficult for you. We're throwing lots of Hebrew words and concepts at you, but I'm going to help you put them together, and I told you we'd be drinking through a fire hose. In Leviticus 23, just read verse 1 and 2. The Lord said to Moses, Speak to the Israelites and say to them, These are my appointed feasts, the appointed feasts of the Lord, which you are to proclaim as sacred assemblies. Okay, so the appointed feast are the word for seasons earlier. That's Moed. But he calls them something else in this chapter. He calls them sacred assemblies. In Hebrew, a sacred assembly is a mikra. Strong's number 47, 41. A mikra is a public meeting, something that was definitively called out, or a rehearsal. Now, for some of you that's new, and for some of you it's not new, but this adds an entirely new dimension to the calendar. We're not just counting down the calendar waiting for something to happen. Everything that we're doing in the heptetic calendar is a rehearsal or a pattern for something that is coming. Why on earth do we have a day before somebody gets married that we call a rehearsal dinner? I don't know anybody that's ever seriously gotten it wrong. I've done lots of weddings. I mean, maybe a groomsman didn't know where to stand or occasionally somebody forgot a ring. But... Um, <laughs> Whatever that tradition is tied to, it's not the actual wedding, and yet it looks exactly like it, doesn't it? Maybe the bride's not in her dress, but they're all standing in the right places. They're all uh, acting out what will occur. The very name, Sacred Assembly, or Mikra, is teaching us something. Israel has seven sacred assemblies that could be called Mikras or Feast. <coughs> we've been talking about them but we do it again Pasach is Passover Hag uh, Hamatzot is unleavened bread Reshith is first fruits Shavot is Pentecost Rosh Hashanah is a feast of trumpets Yom Kippur is the day of atonement and Sukkot is tabernacle in seven months, there would be seven feasts that would act as rehearsals for the salvation of the world. But it began and ended with Israel. That in itself is extraordinary when you consider that it is a rehearsal. Don't you think? Yes. Well, we're about to take this to the first and second verse of the chapter tonight. This is going to get interesting. And enter, before we do... An interesting comparison can be made when considering the Exodus, which of course took place at Passover and involved a sevenfold promise uh, that is often utilized in Hebrew weddings. Let's do that. So, uh, y'all all open to Exodus 6. Keep your finger in Ruth. Hey girls, what are y'all waiting for in chapter 2? When Ruth meets Boaz, what do you want to happen? Come on, tell me the truth. What do you want to happen? Rescue. What else? 
take him out. If you're in a movie and he leans forward, makes the first move and kisses her, then your heart flutter a little bit. The longer you've been waiting, the longer you've been held in suspense for that, the more exciting that is, isn't it? Watch what happens when we line up these promises. Are you on Exodus 6? Beginning at verse 6. Therefore say to the Israelites, I am the Lord. And promise number one, I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. Jewish grooms would stand outside of their father-in-law's house and make this proclamation holding a cup of wine to their bride. But that's not all they said. I will free you from being slaves to them. That's good news if you didn't like the way your father or mother worked you, I guess. Of course, originally the context for this is God speaking to Israel, calling his bride out of Egypt. I will free you from being being slaves to them. Promise number three. And I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. To be brought out from a way of life is something. (coughs) To have all of the slavery that came from that way of life driven out of you, that's another. To be purchased, redeemed by the one you love is something altogether different. And then the day that he takes you to be his own, even better. When we're talking about these first four promises, and there are seven, understand that this is the basis for every Passover meal. Every Passover meal has four glasses of wine distributed throughout the Passover meal. (coughs) The first one is to celebrate being brought out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. The second glass of wine is to celebrate freedom from slavery. And the third glass of wine is to celebrate his redeeming you. The fourth glass of wine is to celebrate being taken to be his own. Which glass of wine did Jesus hold up at the Last Supper? In this cup you have redemption, right? Which cup did he promise they would drink anew in the kingdom to come? The fourth. There is a fifth cup, though. And I, not a fifth cup of wine, I'm sorry. A fifth promise. Only four cups. Four cups was the limit. But who knows how big the cups were? <laughs> Fifth promise, and I will be your God. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God, who brought you up uh, out from under the yoke of Egyptians. Fifth promise, I will be your God. Sixth promise, and I will bring you to the land. It's not just going to take you to be his. He's not just going to assume the role as your God and you submit to him as God and you know him and are known by him, but he is also going to bring you into a new land. The seventh one, I will give it to you as a possession. He didn't just bring his bride to the land, he gave them the land. Now, to help us put some of this together, I made a chart. If you lay the feast, Beside the promises, in the order of the feast, I know all y'all have this in your Bible, right? It, it came from your Christian book distributor. 
Yeah. The Catechism of the Hebrew Calendar teaches us something. When you look at the promises God gives in the order that He gives them and the feasts that He gives in the order that He gives them, there is a correlation that is very interesting. At Passover, you're brought out from your old way of life. At unleavened bread, when you're searching your house, getting rid of leaven, that's when you're actually being freed from the slavery that came from the old way of life. And at first fruits, the first time that faith-filled action breaks the soil of your heart, you are walking in your redemption. I will redeem you. Of course, at Pentecost, what happens? I take you as my own. The groom actually takes the bride. Now, when was the story of Ruth and Boaz happening? It's at Shavuot. It began at Pentecost, uh, at Passover, but it finishes at Pentecost or Shavuot. What is the promise of God? I will take you as my own. What chapter 2 is hinting at just by the agricultural language that is in it is he's about to take her as his own. Can you feel the chapter leading up to that? He noticed her in the field. She has responded. They've had some exchange. And he's invited her to stay in the field and he will provide protection for her, provision for her. And then she goes home to her mama, the Jewish Yenta. Her, her uh, mother-in-law, who says, uh, where did you go to? Oh, him, I know. Yes, yes, that's very good, you know. And God is preparing the circumstance for the matchmaking. Okay? His promises say it. The agricultural calendar says it. The feast calendar says it. If you were a Jew hearing this story, your heart would begin to patter as the pace of the story picked up in chapter 2 because you would realize that we're headed towards something. Does that make sense? Yes. Yes. Y'all, is this this worth doing? Yes. (laughs) I just thought I'd ask. Yes, sir. And she calls him, he's one of the kinsmen redeemers, and that's the first verse. Yes. Yes. And he was already known as a near kinsman, but he had not taken her to be his own. You know? And uh, there's a plot twist in the next chapter. There's a kinsman nearer than I. But he gets covered with shame. That's a, that's a whole other thing. By the way, uh, trumpets, I will be your God. Friends, when that trumpet blows, the whole world will know who God is. They won't love him. They won't accept him. They will know and not love him anyway. At atonement, God atones for Israel and the land. He wipes sin away from people and the world. At tabernacles, the meek inherit the earth. You learning anything? It's going to get better. You can go ahead and kill that for a minute. It becomes extremely interesting knowing that Shavuot or Pentecost is the time in the Parashat Jewish liturgy when Ruth is read. In other words, every year they read through the Tanakh, and you know what they're reading during the harvest. They're reading Ruth. Uh, We'll share some thoughts from Chabad.org here in a minute about that. It corresponds to the fourth promise. While they're reading Ruth, they're thinking about God taking them as their own. They're reflecting on the fact that Ruth 
chose to be a Jew, but they were born Jews. The Moed were, pro, were a prophetic blueprint, the, the God-ordained seasons, the God-ordained times. And the Mikra are like rehearsals for the event. So every year you would have these seasons that reminded you it's appointed times, and in those seasons you would rehearse things that were a pattern of future events. Does that make sense? Yes. Ruth is preparing us all to be brought out, to be freed, to be redeemed, and to be taken as God's own possession. I'd like to settle on that word for just a second, possession. You need some context to know what the word possession means, don't you? If I say, I have possession, does that mean that I have material things, or does that mean something spiritual has me? Possession. Which is it? Yes. When we say that we are God's own possession, I want to suggest to you that being redeemed means that He purchased you. But when He puts His Spirit inside you, you become His possession in both senses of the word. Are you hearing me? Like, you could wear the ring on the finger, but until you made it to the honeymoon suite, you're married and yet you're not married. Yeah, oh, oh, only one guy's giggling and every girl's like, can we laugh at that? <laughs> no, it's God put this in our lives so that we would understand it. And he made one of the, I'm not trying to be trite or, or, or ugly, he made one of the heights of human physical experience when a husband and wife are one. That was intending to mimic what it would be like when God's spirit entered your spirit. It was supposed to be the height of our spiritual experience. Okay? That's beautiful, isn't it? Well, the book of Ruth is teaching us about this. She shows up at Passover. But he begins the process of taking her to be his own at Pentecost. I'm not trying to invert my phrases a lot. I don't know which you're most comfortable with, and so I'm using them all. Um... The love story is about to introduce our first hero. That's what, is, that's what we're in the midst of. Before we do, I want to introduce you to one other word. Let's put this on the screen for a second. When you see this word, you're going to be pretty convinced you've already seen it. So far we had a uh, moed, which was a uh, appointed uh, time or day. We had a mikra, which was a rehearsal. And here we have something like um, a mikre. Yeah. None of you are, are professional Hebrew linguists, are you? Then it is most certainly mikre. <laughs> a masculine noun referring to a chance event, a happening, a fate. It refers to something that occurs without human planning or intervention. This is fun. Read the first three verses of Ruth, and of course we're going to get to the third verse. Somebody read it. Now Naomi had a relative on her husband's side from the clan of 
Elimelech, a man of standing, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabitess said to Naomi, Let me go to the fields and pick up the leftover grain behind anyone whose eyes I can find favor. Naomi said to her, Go ahead, my daughter. So she went out and began to glean in the fields behind the harvesters. As it turned out, she found herself working in a field belonging to Boaz, who was from the clan of Elimelech. This is crazy. When she went out in the field, did she know it was Boaz's field? No. Did she know who Boaz was? No. She didn't know any of those things. There was no human planning in this. And we know that Naomi didn't know where she went. This phrase in Hebrew is McRae, and in English, as it turned out, the King James is funny. The King James says, her hap. I'm not kidding. Like, her hap. Yeah, I know. You would make more sense of the Hebrew word, would you not? Remember that, King James only people. This, this old English word hap is in happenstance. Or as it happened to be, just by chance, okay? But I understood the Hebrew more readily than I understood that. I want to put the words beside each other for a second. Mikra, Strong's number, somebody read it. 4744. Mikra, Strong's number. 4745. Do you see how closely they're related just based on their Strong's number? They're sequential. So it's the beginning of the barley harvest in 123, which is the time of Passover and specifically first fruits. It is God's appointed season or Moed, and we're having a holy convocation, a mikra, also called the rehearsal. Ruth goes out into the fields at the appointed time or season. It's unknown to her that she's about to have a holy convocation. <laughs> it just happens to be Moaz's, Boaz's field. It just, by happenstance, or did it? If you look at the word mikra and mikre, one is a rehearsal and the other is miraculous. Is it possible that God built into the calendar rehearsals for the miraculous. I'm going to say yes. When we are in the season that God says to be in, the festival, on the day of holy meeting with him that we're supposed to be, is it actually happenstance? No. God gave us a prescribed way, and when we walk in that prescribed way, what everyone else would call coincidence, we would say is not a kosher word. We've been rehearsing for the miraculous. That's good, isn't it? It seems that a mikra, a rehearsal, leads to a mikre, the miraculous. Put another way, rehearsing, repeating, reliving God's plan leads you into chance events, divine happenings, God's intervention. Coincidence is not kosher. Why do all those things seem to happen to them? Well, perhaps they're following God's calendar. Maybe he had a similar meeting plan for you, but he couldn't figure out how to get your attention away from Netflix, or from grumbling, or from any number of other things. <laughs> 
See, Ruth was out in a field working. So much happens when you show up for work in the kingdom. (laughs) On this topic of coincidence, I wanted to talk to you just for a minute about an issue of sovereignty and free will. Somebody read, uh, who's going to be somebody? Joe, who an elder's wife raises her hands, she gets it. Joe, Proverbs 16, 33. So which is it? Does God meticulously control every aspect of the universe, including a turn of the dice? Or can he take any turn of the dice and make it work for your benefit? These are interesting questions for an interesting time. I noticed that Albert Einstein had a quote to Niels Bohr. He said, God does not play dice with the universe. I'd like to remark to Mr. Einstein that he may not play dice with the universe, but if he did, he would win. (laughs) Uh, Keith, take Numbers 26, verse 55. Daniel, take Joshua 18, verse 10. And Brandon, take uh, Nehemiah 11, and verse 1. We're going to preach more about this subject coming, so I will end this fairly quickly, this part, but I, Hebrew calls it a mikreh, happenstance, that she ends up there. But you sense that it's far more than that, don't you? And yet nobody made her pick that field. She had the free will to choose whichever field she wanted to. Wow, God's big, isn't he? Okay. Numbers 2655. Be sure that the land is distributed by lot. What each group inherits will be according to the names for its ancestral tribe. Moses in the law is talking to Israel and he's saying, this land I'm going to give you, make sure it's distributed by lot. Doesn't that strike you as the singular worst way to distribute it? Yeah. Mm -hmm. It does mean. I mean, remember, God is speaking. Now, so follow me here. Remember, distribute the land by lot, each his own. I mean, how many words is God revealing from heaven? Many, right? We have the whole Torah. Couldn't he just reveal Judah gets that? (laughs) Simeon gets that? But he doesn't. He chooses to use lots. Why? Why go through the lottery system? What if it's a way of talking about ultimate sovereignty? What if it is not so much that God controls every single blade of grass all of the time, is that he has ultimate sovereignty and that whatever that grass decides to do, he will make it work for his will. What if he could take any turn of that dice and cause the turn of the dice to serve his ultimate aim? This allows you free will and God's sovereignty, and I don't see the two in conflict. My own view is that God is ultimately sovereign, meaning that there are many variables in his defined plan, and there is a constant end that has never changed. It's been determined since before there was a beginning. It is God's glory that in his plan, 
He gives us angelic powers and various other entities in the Bible genuine autonomous choice. But he is able to use those choices in a manner that ultimately, even if not temporarily, accomplish his goal. Ruth could have chosen any field. And if she had, perhaps the story, the book of Ruth, would have needed a few more chapters. But she didn't. She used the freedom that God gave her to choose Boaz's field. That kind of freedom and beauty, even in insignificant choices, being integral to the aim of God is astounding to me. Two lost parents, a drug addict and an alcoholic, can choose a house that puts you next to the person that you're supposed to meet. Said, but they were sinning when they did it. Yeah, he's that big. Was he not big enough to keep them from sinning? Of course he is. He chooses not to. He gives us autonomy. Ruth gives us encouragement that the seasons are set. They're coming no matter what people do. That the holy convocations are set. That God wants to meet with his people, but who shows up as his people? That might not be set. (laughs) Whosoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. But the question remains who? A definite, the ones that do, are saved. And an indefinite, who are the ones who will. But God's goal is met in the end. It's just my little comment on Arminianism and Calvinism. Uh, Let's go to Bethlehem, Boaz, and Ruth. What do you pastors do all day? At this point in the story, we're beginning to sense romance. Romance that may be brewing between Boaz and Ruth. Uh, It is probably Mikre, or divine coincidence, that you're going to find out that the spot that they meet in is a spot where a patriarch had lost his great love. Who wants to read? Sam, take Genesis 35, 39, uh, 35, verse 19 through 22. Genesis 35, 19 through 22. So Rachel died and was buried on the way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. Over her tomb, Jacob set up a pillar, and to this day that pillar marks Rachel's tomb. Israel moved on again and pitched his tent beyond Migdal Eder. While Israel was living in that region, Reuben went in and slept with his father's concubine, Doha, and Israel heard of it. Listen to where we're at, though. We have Jacob, who is just buried Rachel. She died outside Bethlehem. A pillar was set up over her tomb. And when Israel moved next, the place that he moved his tent was called Migdal Eder. Migdal means tower. Eder means flock. That is going to be vitally important to our next couple passages. So, uh, Christy, take Micah 4, 8. Joy, take Micah 5, 2. If we're going to sit next to a Hanukkah bush, we might as well bring some Christmas into our meeting today. (laughs) (coughs) 
<laughs> Before she reads this, have y'all made the connection to the proximity of Bethlehem and the book of Ruth is taking place <coughs> in Bethlehem? <laughs> the book of Ruth is happening in Bethlehem. Rachel died and is buried right outside Bethlehem near a place called Migdal Ader, Watchtower of the Flock, where the patriarch lost the great love of his life is where Boaz is about to find the great love of his life. Uh, Micah 4.8 gets better than that, though. As for you, a watchtower of the flock, O strong... Oh, oh, I'm sorry, Christy. As for you, what? Migdal Eder, watchtower of the flock. Keep going. Kingship will come to the daughter of Jerusalem. Where will kingship come to daughter of Jerusalem? The Talmud said it would happen at Migdal Eder. And there's a reason the Talmud said it. God sees your great loss. He knows when you were hurt. He knows when those things happen. And what if in that very place, just by divine coincidence, by Mikre, what if this is the place that is going to announce Jesus from. That right in the midst of your pain, he's already planning your restoration. Mm-hmm. Let's take Micah 5.2. But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you were small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origin are from of old, from ancient times. In the region of Bethlehem, near Migdal Adder, we had a patriarch's wife die. In the book of Ruth, we're going to find out, uh, I'm going to show you satellite images here in just a minute, that it's in that region that Boaz finds Ruth. We're also going to find out that something else very much happened in that region. Okay, I want to show you, before we get to our satellite images, where I found this. I'd like to do that for you all, that way you... Never have the impression that somehow or another we just receive page numbers by divine revelation. Uh, We read, we study, we uh, ask the Lord, and we verify uh, what we think we've heard. In Alfred Ederheim's The Life and Times of Jesus the Messiah, which he is a German Jew who did extensive uh, anthropological work on the Jewish nation, Each of the pastors have a copy of his volumes. We find this. But as we pass from the sacred gloom of the cave, he was just talking about the birth of Jesus in a cave, out into the night, its sky all aglow with starry host, its loneliness is peopled, and its silence made vocal from heaven. There is nothing now to conceal, but much to reveal. Though the manner of it would seem strangely incongruous to Jewish thinking. And yet, Jewish tradition here may prove both illustrative and helpful. That the Messiah was to be born in Bethlehem was a settled conviction. Equally so was the belief that he was to be revealed from Migdal Eder, the tower of the flock. This Migdal Eder was not the watchtower of the ordinary flocks which pastured, 
on the barren sheep ground beyond Bethlehem, but it lay close to the town on the road to Jerusalem. A passage in the Mishnah leads to the conclusion that the flocks which pastured there were destined for temple sacrifices, and accordingly that the shepherds who watched over them were not ordinary shepherds. The latter were under the ban of rabbinism, uh, the rule of the rabbis, on account of their necessary isolation from religious ordinances and their manner of life, which rendered strict legal observance unlikely, if not absolutely impossible. The same Mishnaic passage also leads us to infer that these flocks lay out all the year round since they are spoken of as in the fields 30 days before Passover, that is, in the month of February, when in Palestine average rainfall is nearly greatest. Thus Jewish tradition in some dim manner apprehended the first revelation of the Messiah from that Migdal Eder, where shepherds watched the temple flocks all year round. Of the deep symbolic significance of such a coincidence, it is needless to speak. Let me put that in less specialized language. The Jews expected that Jesus would, not Jesus, that Messiah would not only come from Bethlehem, that he would come specifically from Migdal Eder, the watchtower of the flock. And as their tradition developed over time, they needed to raise sheep for Passover, lambs for Passover. They didn't want regular shepherds to do it because the regular shepherds were not particularly observant since they were out watching their sheep. So they had special shepherds do it. Special shepherds that were accountable to the rabbis. They did it on a road that was on the way to Jerusalem. Well, it's his connection with Migdal Eder that helped me here. This is what we find. This is a satellite image that we're going to blow up. First, in the left, you see the word? See that? Bethlehem. Now, next to it, See Church of the Nativity? I don't know whether it's Church of the Nativity or not. I don't really care. I'm just trying to get us to here. See that? It says Shepherd's Field. See the one above it? says Shepherd's Field Church. There's four locations here that they say is the Shepherd Field of Luke 2. We'll read it here in just a second. They argue about which of the four. There's an Orthodox version. There is a uh, Catholic version. Uh, the joke in, in Israel is where there are two sites, there's at least five opinions. You know what there is no argument about? They're adjacent to the field of Boaz. The field that Boaz met Ruth in, his family land holdings, which are known, touches for sure the major sites that people say that the shepherds were announced to. In other words, the field that, that Boaz met Ruth in is the field that Jesus' birth was announced in. Tell me that's not good. Do you think that really um, this is coincidence? It's Mikre. It is God's uh, divine working. So go ahead and turn that off, Wade. Let's read a couple passages together. Um, Sasha... Take Luke 2, 8 through 15.
shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is Christ the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find the baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Suddenly, a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace to men on whom his favor rests. When the angels had left him and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us. Hold there. They're in fields right outside Bethlehem. <coughs> the identifying feature is a tower called Migdal Edar. And uh, it's where the patriarch lost his wife, it's where Boaz found his, and it's where the angels announced Messiah, who would come looking for his. Um, they go back into Bethlehem to uh, find the baby. That's why uh, the Church of the Nativity is to the west. Who knows whether that's right? It's probably not. But the land ownership in Israel is verifiable and is right. <coughs> Those shepherds were not ordinary shepherds, but they were likely shepherds who had a responsibility to tell the rabbis that they reported to, hey, something happened to us tonight, which is why that's where it appeared. But where this gets really interesting is while there's a few different opinions to the specific site of the shepherd's field, it's noted by everybody that it's immediately in proximity to the fields of Boaz. So... We have in one setting the place where Jacob lost his love. In one setting. Why was Jacob attracted to Rachel? Uh, Genesis 29, 17. <laughs> one of my favorite of all time. <laughs> Somebody got it? Read it with all of the zest and vigor that you possess. <laughs> and Leah's eyes were weak, but Rachel was beautiful of form and face. She was beautiful how? Form and face. Form and face. I don't know, we could search the commentaries to figure out what that means, but somehow I think that you need no further explanation. <laughs> now, listen. The patriarch lost his wife that he's first attracted to. Why? Because she's built. Why does Boaz express interest in Ruth? Read Ruth 2, 11 through 12. Boaz replied, I've been told all about what you have done to your mother-in-law since the death of your husband. How you left your father and mother and your homeland and came to live with a people you did not know before. May the Lord repay you for what you have done. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord. The God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Let's say good, good. better, better. better. Best. best. The patriarch had a good idea. Never marry somebody you think is ugly. That's a bad idea. It got better, good, better. It got better with Boaz. Boaz was attracted to her character and her appearances, never mentioned. It was her character that caught him. But it got best under Jesus. There was an attraction, there's a required character, and there's a required response. Do you hear me? Yeah. But all three, it happened in the same field. 
Come on, man. Fields of Love. Dancing with my father in Fields of Love. How's the song go? We changed it. Now there's another one. I found your... Loving it in the battlefield. Yeah, the open fields. As long as they're singing about Boaz's field, it's okay. Yes, <laughs> yes you may. He was attracted to her. It's exactly what her mom looks. Yes. She joined to people who don't know and in her country and everything. So I think some of the qualities of her mom, she's even good. Yeah. He is, a, he is attracted to what he knows of her, not just what he saw uh, in an image. How much better would the world be if uh, men were as mature as Boaz? You also get the impression that he's not a teenager, don't you? He calls everybody a young man, which might indicate he was a little uh, older. Um, So as remarkable as it is that that's where Jacob lost his love and Boaz found his love, it's even more remarkable if we consider that it's likely the place the angels announced about a son coming for uh, a bride himself. Let's get into the Shavuot similitude. I want to get towards your homework and we haven't finished the chapter. The Shavuot similitude. This comes from um, Chabad.org. The book of Ruth was recorded by the prophet Samuel. I was glad they came to that same conclusion. I would have been embarrassed otherwise. It is appropriate to read the book of Ruth on Shavuot for two reasons. First, Because Shavuot is a harvest festival. And the book of Ruth gives us a picture of harvest. And of how the poor were treated in the harvest season. With sympathy and love. Secondly, because Shavuot is the anniversary of the passing of King David. Who was a great grandson of Ruth and Boaz. Whose story is told in the book of Ruth. But perhaps the main reason for our reading of the book of Ruth on this festival is because it gives us a vivid picture of the Ger Zik, uh, Zedek, the Ger Zedek, or true proselyte. Shavuot is the time of the giving of our Torah when we received it, uh, and like the Ger Zedek, pledged to accept the Torah. In other words, Chabad.org makes the connection we received the Torah at Pentecost. We got our first true Gentile converts at Pentecost. Um, we lost King David, who died at Pentecost. And that's why we read this during that time. They're making many of the prophetic connections that we're making, right? Before we get back into the chapter... I gave you homework about Moabite gleanings. So, um, who would like to read? Jacob, take Leviticus 19, 9 through 10. Anybody else want to read? Frank, take Deuteronomy 24, 19 through 22. Uh, Rob, you're going to take 2 Samuel 12, 4 through 6. Uh, Young Sutherland, Take Proverbs 28, 17. Natalie, Moloch, take, uh, what did I tell you to take something? Proverbs 28, 17. No, it's 28, 27. And Natalie, you take Proverbs 19, 17. That'll give us a chance to talk a little bit about Moabite gleanings. 
You may not realize it, but you're putting together all of the tools that you need to understand the chapter, and the next time you read it, it'll be different. Leviticus? Leviticus 19, 9-10. When you reap the harvest of the Lord, do not reap to the very edges of your field, or gather the gleanings of your harvest. Do not go over your vineyard a second time, or pick up the grapes that have fallen. Leave them for the poor and the alien. I am the Lord your God. So whatever you're harvesting, if this were it, and their fields were not square like this, you could go over it once, but couldn't go over it again. And the corners, you couldn't touch at all. Why? Why did he say? For the poor and for the alien. It's, it's a welfare system. God was concerned about those that didn't have a way to make a living, like, say, Naomi and Ruth. Uh, we could spend all day long talking about how that's different than our welfare system, which gives people who have the ability to make a living an incentive not to. But this was there expressing two things simultaneously. One is... I don't have to strain out every last uh, thing that my land will grow because I trust that God will supply my needs from what I get, not what I don't have. Secondly, it showed in your everyday life a concern for everyone else. There was no Israelite that did not leave something for everyone else. Their lives were not about them. They were about other people. They had to take care of their needs, but in taking care of their needs, they were equally concerned with everybody else's all of the time. How much better would we be if we grew up like that? But you do have the chance to live like that now. These are choices. Put in the next one. Leviticus 24, 19-22. When you are harvesting in your field and you overlook a sheep, do not go back to get it. Now... Think of what we were saying earlier about sovereignty and free will. If you make a mistake in the body of the field that you are supposed to glean for, that you're supposed to harvest, and you accidentally walk past one, an error, don't seek to correct that error. God is bigger than your error. He will make that error serve someone else, even if you experience temporary loss. He's ultimately sovereign, and you'll be rewarded for it. That might be how you need to view suffering in your life. It was an error, not even on your part. It was loss. There's no way around that. But that doesn't mean that God won't reward you for everything you lost eventually. That's not making the event right. It's making God bigger than the event. Amen. Okay, who had the next one? Second Samuel 12, 4-6. Now a traveler came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveler who had come to him. Instead, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who had come to him. David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, As surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this deserves to die. Now, I want you to think a little more deeply about this than you might be inclined to. What passage do you know we're talking about? Nathan's rebuking David. David the adulterer, David the murderer. That's not the point. 
The point here is that the need to care more for the poor than for yourself, the need to consider the person who had one lamb, if you had more than one lamb, was so strong that this was the most effective way to get in touch with David's actual heart. See, he could have walked up and said, you're a murderer, you're an adulterer, but that might not have gotten to his heart quite like saying, I want to tell you a story about a man who abused those with less power than him. That moved his heart more than if we had simply talked about sexual sin. And when he realizes he's the man who did that, he's broken. You get the impression that the way that God got his attention was in dealing with the poor, not the way that he thought he dealt with an equal or... You, you get me? Okay. Um, so in the law, we saw about the sheaves. In the prophets, we see it's how the prophet gets David's attention. Let's take those Proverbs now in the writings. Proverbs twenty-eight twenty-seven: He who gives to the poor will lack nothing. But he who closes his eyes to them receives many curses. Okay. During a time when our eyes are being opened to the battlefield, as Pastor preached about, we have to understand that there is nothing that God is more concerned about than how you view those that have less power than you. We're not talking simply about food. We're not talking about size of houses. We're not talking about economic equality. When you believe someone has less power than you in a situation and you mistreat them because of that, that is a sin that would get David's attention more than adultery and more than murder. Think about that the next time you gossip, the next time you slander, the next time you do something because you can and they can't do anything about it. That's incredible, isn't it? See, in America, when we think of poor, we think of the guy out here on Highway 6. I don't. Uh, Three years of homeless ministry broke me of that thought. He's there because he wants to be. When you think of poor, you need to think about anyone with less power than you have. That will make it far clearer. Uh, And it will close your eyes. You won't understand what's going on around you if you mistreat them. Uh, Proverbs (laughs) 19.17 He who is kind to the poor lends to the Lord, and he will reward him for what he has done. When you take of what God has given you, stop thinking money for just a second. We can come back to it. You want to think money, money, think of India. But for every other thing, right now, When you take of the authority, the power, the influence that you have, and you use it for the welfare of someone who does not have, it's like lending something to God. When you use that power, position, and influence to hurt someone because they cannot do anything about it, you are calling down a curse upon your future. That's incredible, isn't it? So the book of Ruth is an annual reminder, according to Chabad.org, of how God wants you to deal with foreigners, aliens, and widows. Precisely because they're in a category of people without power. Does that make sense? Without right, if you will. Okay, Uh, this, uh, in this romantic redemption story where Boaz is attracted to the character of Ruth, he not only notices her because of his love for the law and the poor, uh, he not only notices her because she's a, a, a young woman, but because of his love for the law and his love for the poor. 
See, during the season, they're harvesting, so he's thinking about the poor. How do you know that? <coughs> you know it because we're between Passover and Pentecost, and you know it because of the laws of gleaning taught him. And by the way, in the passage, he says, even if she gleans from where the harvest is, don't you embarrass her. What does that say about his heart towards the poor? He had to love the law to love the poor. Now, when I thought of Boaz loving the law and loving the poor, I couldn't help but remember this phrase in Galatians 2, 8 through 10. For God, who was at work in the ministry of Peter as an apostle to the Jews, was also at work in my ministry as an apostle to the Gentiles. James, Peter, and John, those reputed to be pillars, gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship when they recognized the grace given me. They agreed that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the Jews. All they asked, say all they asked, all they asked. was that we should continue to remember the poor, the very thing that I was eager to do. Do you hear it? The two most important things to them were the law and the poor. Ministry and your practical deeds to those that have less power than you do. What if we judged leaders that way? By the way, that concept spans both testaments there. That's incredible, isn't it? Okay. I told you Moabite gleanings. What was the other thing that you had to learn about? Leverite leanings. So uh, somebody read for me who's going to do it. Good job, Larissa. Read to me Deuteronomy 25, 5 through 10. Then we'll put, uh, we have to build these pieces and then we'll put them together in the chapter. The word lever, L-E-V-I-R, from which we take Leverite marriage, refer it's Latin for a husband's brother. The Leverite marriage dealt with the situation where you have a widow who has no children. That is a serious problem because the property of the dead man needs to be maintained. It has to continue in a family line. Uh, all of the property assigned in Israel is assigned to a specific tribe, hence <coughs> to a man, right, and his family. We looked at the Zeholophad anomaly in uh, Joshua regarding 
what happens if there are daughters that are alive? Can they remarry? And the answer was yes, but they had to remarry within the tribe, right? That way the, the land stayed there. Now, when we hear this, sometimes this is a bit offensive to us. You're like, gross, I don't want to marry my husband's brother. And Jennifer never met my brother. He left when I was still in high school, but had she met him, you know, he wasn't all that bad, huh? You, she, she, had, uh, she had children, though. So that's not the issue. You have to remove this, this from its romantic setting and think about it from a standpoint of survival. Uh, this meant that a woman would not only be allowed to stay on the property that she had uh, lived on all of her life and that was her husband's, uh, but that she was guaranteed an airship that would take care of her. Okay. So in a day where we don't have social services and we have land that is not supposed to leave families, this actually was a great idea. And I want you to notice the prohibitions that are here. She's allowed to go to the next of kin and request him to take her as a wife and raise children for the family estate in the name of her dead husband. But here were the prohibitions. He first had to meet three conditions. First, he had to be a near relative. He had to be a near relative, not of her, of the husband. That way it is the same family, it's the same um, tribe, it's the same genes. Secondly, he had to be able to produce children. This was not uh, so that he could comfort her, and this was not so that there would be uh, a sexual situation between them. It was for the production of offspring. Are you beginning to understand why Judah's son did such a terrible thing then? <laughs> By deliberately not producing offspring, he greatly erred. His name was Er. (laughs) Yeah, if you haven't read that story, you'd be surprised what's in your Bible. (laughs) Thirdly, and maybe this is uh, was the most important, he had to be willing. Uh, Now, how do you know she had to be willing? This is initiated by her, right? She has to go and say, I would like you to do this. If he will not do it, he is shamed before all of his people forever, spit in the face, and become known as the line of the unsandaled. Mm -hmm. These are important technical details to our future discussions. All right? Uh, Let's hop back into Ruth. We're going to read through the chapter one more time. Uh, It's 9.16. We are uh, an hour and 46 minutes in. In the next 15 to 20 minutes, you'll have a new understanding of Ruth, and we'll uh, give you homework for the next week. <coughs> Ruth 2, verses 1 through 3. Can we get some? There we go, Paul. Now Naomi had a relative on her husband's side from the clan of Elimelech, a man of standing whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabitess said to Naomi, Let me go to the fields and pick up the leftover grain behind anyone in whose eyes I find favor. Naomi said to her, Go ahead, my daughter. So she went out and began to glean in the fields behind the harvesters. As it turned out, she found herself working in a field belonging to Boaz, who was of, from the clan of, a, clan of Elimelech. So most Bible dictionaries give the meaning of the name Boaz as strength, or alternatively, strength in him. That's kind of an exciting thing when you consider the role that he's about to play, right? 
He needs to be strong enough to redeem her. He needs to be bold enough to redeem her. His strength needs to come from the Lord. By the way, he's from the clan of... Which means God is my king. So if you say Boaz of Elimelech, then you have my strength is in him, God is my king. That's pretty interesting. He is a relative, but at this point in the story, we don't know how close. If you were a Jew and you understood Leverite marriage, if you're a Jew and you understood the laws of gleaning, if you're a Jew and understood the calendar, at this moment, you're starting to get excited. Like, hey, could this be? Could this be? In verse 2... Ruth's acceptance would not be based on merit, but favor. Consider verse 2. Let me go into the fields and pick up leftover grain behind anyone in whose eyes I find favor. She's not going out into the fields looking for something that's owed to her. Man, there's nothing more unattractive than entitlement. But whatever, that's not what this is about. What this is about is she's going out there appealing to a sense of mercy. Is there anybody that sees my character as attractive? Is there anybody that looks at what God is doing in me and values that, and if I find favor in that person's eyes, well, that could be something. That's better than I gave up.com or Christian Booty Call or whatever they're marketing now. Yeah, I quit on God and decided to do it my own arm.com. As it turned out, as it turned out, as it turned out, that word, of course, you know now is Mikre. Without the working of man, without the intrigue of man, without the manipulation of man, there is something about to happen in the story when you hear the word mikre. As it turned out, you're about to go, wow, something miraculous is about. In Hebrew, you're looking at it going, some miracle is about to, some unplanned event is about to happen. Now suspense is really building. The fact that we learn right away that Boaz is related to Elimelech is hinting towards the need for a Leverite marriage. Ruth 2, 4 through 7. Then Boaz arrived from Bethlehem and greeted the harvesters. The Lord be with you. The Lord bless you, they called back. Boaz asked the foreman of his harvesters, Whose young woman is that? The foreman replied, she is the Moabitess who came back from Moab with Naomi. She said, please let me glean and gather among the sheaves behind the harvesters. She went into the field and has worked steadily from morning till now, except for a short rest in the shelter. Verse 4, where he says, uh, just then Boaz arrived from Bethlehem and greeted the harvesters. The Lord be with you. This greeting seems especially faithful given the previously covered time of the judges. It indicates something different about the character of Boaz than the average Israelite in the time. Not only does he come from the clan of God is my king, and his name is, his strength is in me, but look at the way he's greeting his workers. If you contrast that with what you find in other places in the book of Judges, you're starting 
to see the character of Boaz. Boaz notices and initiates regarding Ruth. And he asks a foreman. Somebody quick, read, tell me what that foreman's name is in verse 6. You can't. A nameless foreman. A foreman of what? A foreman of the harvest. A foreman over the harvest. You remember when Abraham was going to send out a household servant, a chief servant, to find a bride for his son, and you don't know his name? How interesting that even if we would have known this foreman's name, the Holy Spirit chose not to put it into the text here. He simply called a foreman. Now, if he's the foreman, what does that make Boaz? Well, that's, that's interesting. This means that a nameless foreman of the harvest is, of course, speaking with the Lord of the harvest. And what is the topic of their discussion? A bride. Are you beginning to see a, a more prophetic setting? Yeah. Who is in charge of evangelism? The Holy Spirit. This is why uh, in Acts 1.8, you'll receive my power to be witnesses when the Holy Spirit comes in. He is the foreman of the harvest, but he doesn't speak on his own. He speaks for the Lord of the harvest. He speaks what the Lord, he brings glory to the Lord of the harvest. Man, I wish... That every person could say the Holy Spirit pointed out your significant other. I wish that, that you knew that. You'll never know that if you do it in some ungodly, carnal way. Don't give up on God. You might be right on the edge of your micre moment. You might be rehearsing for the God-ordained miraculous event right now. In John 16, 13, but when he, the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. He will not speak on his own. In fact, he's nameless, selfless, simply called holy. He will speak only what he hears and he will tell you what is yet to come. He will bring glory to me by taking from what is mine and making it known to you. Kind of like pointing out that cute little Moabite. Now, on one level, that's a love story. On another... The Lord of the harvest is communicating with the foreman of the harvest right now. And you are supposed to be working for both of them. Noticing who needs sheaves, who needs water, and how to bring God's harvest into the barn. huh? Amen. It's worth noting that Ruth caught the foreman's eye. Before she caught Boaz's eye, like Boaz didn't come and say, Hey, whose young woman's that? And the foreman go, which woman? There's a woman here? I, I, didn't, I didn't notice. What caught the foreman's eye? Anybody catch it? She, she, worked, worked, she worked steadily. How would your walk be benefited if the Holy Spirit observed and drew attention to your steady faith before the face of Jesus? <laughs> you don't want to miss your Boaz or Ruth moment because you were just a... <laughs> Broke-ass, lazy-ass. <laughs> Those are Boaz's brothers. Listen, the thing is, she didn't know when she entered that field. You would go, hey, if it meant that I would get this, then I would definitely work hard. 
integrity and character when you don't have a hope of return and you do it anyway. Amen. See, if we work for reward, then that's something a lot like a prostitute. If we work because it's the right thing to do, that's like the character of Christ. You see, she's displaying the character of Christ. Ruth 2, 8 through 12. So Boaz said to Ruth, My daughter, listen to me. Don't go and glean in another field, and don't go away from here. Stay here with my servant girls. Watch the field where the men are harvesting, and follow along after the girls. I have told the men not to touch you, and whenever you are thirsty, go and get a drink from the water jars the men have filled. At this, she bowed down with her face to the ground. She exclaimed, Why have I found such favor in your eyes that you notice me? I gotta stop here for just a second. <coughs> Woo, keep your finger right there. We live in a day when what is considered sexy is that if Boaz makes an overture towards Ruth, she's like, You're right, you notice me. In other words, arrogance is what is a prize. Now, we've mistaken it for a godly confidence. Um, what is beautiful about this story is that he noticed her. And that she didn't think that he should or was uh, required to. What is beautiful is her humble state and him reaching to rescue. It's very hard to rescue somebody that thinks they're better than you. Which is pretty well the gospel according to feminism. Anything a man can do, I can do better. Man, nothing is more unattractive than that. Despite the fact that it is totally untrue. Okay, I love all of you ladies, and there are many things you do amazing. If you'd like to have a bench press or a squat record, I'll do it with you any day. It is not true. Okay, and we live in a time that is so perverted. We are robbing beauty from our society. What is romantic about this, husbands, young men, listen. He initiates. He's not a freaking coward that passes notes through friends, hoping that she will approach him. He initiates. He sees her. He asks about her. He is concerned about her character. And when he finds out it's good, the first thing he does is talk about safety, provision for her. Not splitting checks. Not uh, seeing what she's got to bring to the table. This is chivalry because God is chivalrous. God did not stand back and say, when my bride gets right, then I'll reach out. He reached out while his bride was in sin and helped her get right. See, this romantic redemption story tells us what our lives and roles should look like. Ladies, you're worth being pursued if your character is worth being pursued. Guys, if you don't find her character wrapped up in Christ, then of course you shouldn't pursue and if she's pursuing you, you need to run faster than Joseph did from Potiphar. That's just the truth. But if her character is like Christ, ladies, you'll notice that his pursuit of you mirrors his pursuit of Christ. If that's what everybody's drawn to. You know, the book of Ruth is an amazing dating manual. It's an amazing prophetic manual. It has practical application nearly everywhere. Keep reading, Ralph. <laughs> Boaz replied I've been told all about what you have done to your mother-in-law since the death of your husband 
how you left your father and mother and your homeland and came to live with the people you did not know before. May the Lord repay you for what you have done. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Man, do I love that. Boaz, like all good men, including Jesus, initiates. He goes first. Jesus made the first move uh, with all of the risk that that entails, and so must men who want to be husbands. He asked her to stay near. Perhaps it was an evaluation period. Maybe he was giving her a chance to check him out. He was getting a chance to check her out. But what initially drew them to each other was character. He offered protection and provision. You know, our security is also based on the same kind of precious proximity. You can't get far from the Lord and then ask for the Lord's provision and protection. In the story, you find out if you want the provision and protection, you better stay in the Lord's field. But when you stay in the Lord's field, the same one that was drawn to you when you were still Moabitess, Now that your relationship is progressing, he's more drawn to you, not less. When I was thinking about him being attracted to her deeds, I wrote, charm is deceptive and beauty is fleeting. But a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. Give her her reward she has earned and let her work, works bring her praise at the city gates. Now when I wrote that, I have to confess... I was plagiarizing Solomon. (laughs) The phrase that caught my attention and what I thought I would spend half an hour teaching on that we don't now have (coughs) is under whose wings she's come to take refuge. Under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Speaking about uh, Ruth. You know, if you don't know this story well, I don't want to give it away. But she comes to take refuge under Boaz's wings, too. She does that in the story forthcoming. And I'll teach you more about that. But before she did that, she took refuge under the God of Boaz. Mm -hmm. You know what is completely backwards wrong? Every person not yet married, you really should pay attention to this. They did not go pick a potential spouse and then try to get them saved. Boaz was attracted to the fact that she took refuge under the wings of the God of Israel. And that was the criteria for taking refuge under his wings. If the person that you're interested in is not more wrapped up in Jesus than you, they are to be rejected. And you ought to make it hard by being pretty wrapped up in Jesus. Now, this idea under the refuge of wings. In Numbers 15.37, God commanded all Jewish men to make tassels on the corners of their garments. Um, Because of that, throughout Hebrew imagery, which I don't have time to read you tonight, God is pictured as having wings because when you raise a garment with tassels on it that is stretched over your shoulders and on your arms to the Hebrews, it looked a little bit, the fringes on the garment, like feathers on the wings of a bird. Mm -hmm. And so it became a euphemism, like strong like an ox, or any of the other, fast like a gazelle, whatever it might be. And uh, it was comforting. The idea was that God, 
not like a bird, but that birds sometimes uh, imitated God, that God had something that he wrapped around you, like a bird's uh, uh, wings with feathers. Or, um, and because of that, you need to think then, what is it that he wraps around you? Well, those tassels had 613 knots in them, and they were symbolic of the commands. God would wrap his commands around you. And she came to take refuge in the word of God. She wanted God uh, to be her God, God's people to be her people. She not only wanted to die where Naomi died, she wanted to be buried there. That indicates a hope in the resurrection. She took refuge in the wings of God, which made her a candidate to take refuge in the wings of Boaz. So, what can I do to make myself more attractive should this surgical procedure happen? Yes. Yes. Clearly. Get cosmetic surgery. Every one of you. Circumcise your heart. It'll make you more attractive immediately. We might be trying to appeal to people on the wrong basis. If you have a young lady under your purview, please don't let her dress like a whore. It makes the rest of us uncomfortable. Please don't do it. If you're not sure, ask yourself, if this was not my daughter, would I have to turn my neck away? Uh, Man, I'm telling you as a pastor, just as clearly as I know how, we need to be smarter than we are. Let people be drawn to what Jesus has done in you. Let them be drawn to what Jesus has done in you. Let them be drawn to you being found in Him. And you know what? When you rehearse like that and rehearse like that and rehearse like that, miraculous things happen. Amen. It's incredible. It's good. Okay, so, uh, God, I, I don't want to teach on Zitzit anymore. Let me just say he carries them on the wings of eagles. There's a lot of imagery about it. If you've ever, let, let me give you uh, an idea from Psalms, right? Uh, from Psalm 91. Amen. Surely he will save you from the fowler's snare and from the deadly pestilence, which might have been a named demon, by the way. He will cover you with his feathers, and under his wings you will find refuge. That was Psalm 91, 3 and 4. The idea here is that God is the one that you run to for refuge. Uh, Dale Moody said, Trust yourself and you are doomed to be disappointed. Trust in your friends and they will die and leave you. Trust in reputation and some slanderous tongue may blast it. But trust in God and you will never be confounded in time or eternity. That's, of course, similar to something Luther said. I want to read you the testimony of a second century Christian and then move right back to Ruth. In the second century, a Christian was brought before a pagan ruler and told to renounce his faith. If you don't do it, I will banish you, threatened the king. The man smiled and answered, you can't banish me from Christ. For he says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. To this, the king angrily retorted, then I will confiscate your property and take all your possessions. Again, the man smiled. My treasures are all laid up on high. You can't get to them. The king became furious and shouted, I will kill you. The man answered, I've been dead for 40 years. 
I've been dead with Christ, dead to the world, and my life is hidden with Christ and God, and you're unable to touch it. In desperation, the king turned to his advisors and asked, what can you do with a fanatic like this? We are supposed to have run to the Lord in a fanatical way. What Orpah did was not fanatical. It was actually predictable. What Ruth did was fanatical devotion that is hard to explain. And God answered that fanatical devotion with miraculous power. He had somebody reserved for her. That's incredible. In uh, Ruth 2.13, May I continue to find favor in your eyes, my Lord, she said. You have given me comfort and spoken kindly to your servant, though I do not have the standing of one of your servant girls. I'll do it next week, because I don't have time this week. Ruth is given four titles in this book, each one more glorious than the last. She starts as a foreigner, she ends up as a servant, then a maidservant, and then a wife. If you don't like your standing now, it's amazing what faithfulness will do. If you don't like your reputation now, it's amazing what faithfulness will do. If you don't like things now, Ruth ought to give you the encouragement that you could walk in an alien and a foreigner who's supposed to be barred from the people of God and end up the grandmother of a great king. I mean, if Ruth doesn't encourage you that with faith everything is possible, I don't know what would. <coughs> Ruth 2, 14 through 16. So it's late, and it would be easy to miss these. So I'm going to give them to you in bite-sized Moabite gleanings. It was an honor to dip your hand in the dish with the Master. In Matthew 26, 23, Jesus offered this honor to Judas, which just shows how he loves his enemies. But here it's not an enemy. What he's doing is a polite overture. He is showing her affection. He had all the provision that she could possibly want, which speaks something of Matthew 5, 6. Those who hunger and thirst for righteousness will be filled. If you don't have it, it's because you didn't want it bad enough. You didn't wait on it. You didn't fight for it. My favorite part, though, is the way that you harvest uh, barley and also wheat is uh, you grab it with one hand and then you cut it with the other. Those are handfuls, bundles. Uh, from the bundles, he said, take uh, stalks and leave them. He's going way beyond what God asked. He's going further because love demands that you go further. And because he loves her, listen what he's doing. 
he's leaving secret stocks for her everywhere. <laughs> Hasn't our God done that for us? Yeah. Deuteronomy 29, 29, the secret things belong to our God, the things that he's revealed to our children's children forever. Are you chasing after him, looking for the secret stocks that he's laid out there? Are you still looking for the pearl of great price? Are you fighting to bring treasure out of the storehouse, old and new? Or as happens sometimes in a relationship, did your heart just kind of grow cold and now you're just there? You got the ring on, but you no longer have a heart for him. Ruth 2, 17 and 18. So Ruth gleaned in the field until morning. I'm sorry, evening. That would have been a different story. So Ruth gleaned in the field until evening. Then she threshed the barley she had gathered. It amounted to an ephah. Say ephah. Ephah. I, uh, I know when you say ephah immediately, you're like, oh, that much. I, I, I was in a hurry, so I got some help, but it was a trusted source today. <laughs> this is nine gallons of barley seed, which is 30 pounds of barley seed, which is five <coughs> days of provision for two people. And remember, he's already fed her all that she can eat, everything that she wanted. Wow. Do you think he was trying to make an impression on her? See, honey, I only eat too much because I love you. <laughs> Ruth 2.19. Her mother-in-law asked her, where did you glean today? Where did you work? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. In the, in the season of Shavuot, where you're celebrating the receiving of the Torah, the amount of revelation or food that Ruth received caused Naomi to ask questions. Do you receive enough from your Heavenly Father that others go, where did you get that? What fields are you gleaning in? Or are you always the one taking revelation from others? Because you all have access to the same field. I'm going to let that just sit for a minute. You know, my favorite thing as a pastor is when you legitimately share something with me that God revealed to you. It's my singular favorite thing. Uh, I'm not going to say I'd turn it down if you wrote a check for a million dollars, but I've never been looking for that. I am looking for men to respond to these kinds of messages by going to get something from the storehouse of heaven and share it. Not from a commentary. Not from some other church. Not from some other... Sort. Dear God, please don't send me links of messages you want me to watch. It ought to be really clear. I don't like most people. I love you. Uh, I don't like the, the uh, way the church world's doing it. You know what I want? I want to know what God has told you. For most people, you could write that on about one-third of an index card. But I hope you fill volumes and books in your life. This woman received so much in her debt that when she came back, Naomi was like... Where did you go and glean? <laughs> Even when people have said that to me, you know what they mean? What secret book do you own that I don't? Do you have a computer program I don't have? 
No, I'm just more acquainted with the God that we're both supposed to be married to. Then Ruth told her mother-in-law all about the one at whose place she had been working. The name of the man I worked with today is Boaz. Not his brothers who I'll never mention again. You have to picture a very Jewish setting here. Anybody know what a yenta is? <laughs> like a Jewish matchmaker. Naomi just pulled out her Rolodex. <laughs> oh, I know him. <laughs> and I know everybody that he knows. And I know where he's from, and I know his daddy is. Who is my, it's going to be wonderful. You do what I tell you to do. <laughs> I um. I have occasionally watched a show called Goldberg. And uh, there's a Jewish mother in this show. Of course, Fiddler on the Roof would be a more ancient version of, of this. And they call her Smother rather than Mother because she's, she loves them so much that she's trying to control every facet of her life. I want you to notice how obedient Ruth is and how demanding Naomi is. Now, you do exactly what I think you do. And she does it. Um, I'm not going to sit here and make a pitch for an arranged marriage. I would say that being exactly obedient to the word, see, I think Naomi represents the Jewish nation, and the spirit of God will yield for you the results that are promised in the word. But you're going to have to be. You're going to have to let the Holy Ghost be your yenta. Uh, verse 20, the Lord bless him, Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, he has not stopped showing his kindness to the living and the dead. Now that sounded like poetic language before, but given what you now know about Leverite marriage, you know what her mind is uh, gone to, especially when she says, she added, that man is our close relative. He is one of our kinsmen redeemers. We'll get into the word Goel in the weeks to come. Kindness to the living and the dead. Which category are they in? <laughs> About half dead. This reminded me so much of the man who's on the road from Jerusalem down to Jericho. He's on the right road. He's headed the wrong direction. He received such a terrible beating that the scripture says he was half dead. Now, I'm being tongue-in-cheek. I'm remezzing at something here. Um, they've been in the wrong country. Everybody they know are dead. And they're half dead in the sense that they've got no plan, they've got no security, they've not gotten anything. But we place them in the category of the living because one, literally they're alive. And two, we know what's coming. So why kindness to the living and the dead? Well, in the Peshat, the living and the dead here are very much the two women who are alive and kindness to Elimelech and Mahlon who are now going to have their line carried forward and their memory uh, carried through Israel and uh, part of the lineage of, of, um, of the men of Israel and all of those things that are a kindness. <coughs> kindness to the dead and that. <coughs> kindness to the living and that there's still hope and there's still a future. Of course, you really could do a midrash on why Naomi... And Ruth were dead and are now living, and they've been in both categories. But I, I, I don't have time for it now, and 
you're all Bible students. So um, listen to this based on what you now know. Verse 21. The, then Ruth the Moabitess, <laughs> still calling her Moabitess, said, he even said to me, stay with my workers until they finish harvesting all my grain. Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, it will be good for you, my daughter, to go with his girls, because in someone else's field, you might be harmed. Uh, I don't know if that's a Jewish mother's guilt trip, yeah. you know. Uh, better come home by nine, because I heard that somewhere you die immediately if you don't get in the door before nine. I know she didn't tell her that when she went out to uh, to glean the, the day before. She had no idea where she was. So there, there could be some natural motherly kind of manipulation here. Or it could be that we're in the time period of the book of Judges and the lifespan of Gideon, where one brother might murder 70 sons, or a Levite might cut his concubine into 12 pieces, or so many of the other things that happened in the book of Judges. And she really might have been in danger. I think it speaks to the climate of Israel at the time as contrasted to the character of Boaz. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. But it's equally plausible that she was just a typical mother. (laughs) All right. Uh, Verse 23. So Ruth stayed close to the servant girls of Boaz to glean until the barley and the wheat harvest were finished. And she lived with her mother-in-law. This passage ends in the setting of Shavuot. If the Lord of the harvest is pouring out his Torah and his spirit, ought we not remain in his field? See, where we finish the love story tonight is if there is any hope of the romance of redemption, we must stay in his field. We can't give up after a week and say, well, I guess he's not interested. We can't wander off and wonder whether we get a better deal somewhere else. It's going to require some faithfulness, but there is also encouragement. There are secret stalks of revelation being planted for your benefit everywhere. Are you picking up the secret stalks of revelation? Are you picking up the seed the enemy sowed in your field? This week, have you found encouragement from what God has personally revealed to you? Or have you found discouragement by what the devil made sure was revealed to you in the world around you? Man, that's a really uh, powerful image if you think about it. How many of you have ever sang the song, Whose Report Shall We Believe? Uh Were you lying? I know I've sang it as a lie. You're confident that God's got good things for you unless the pediatrician says otherwise. Uh You're certain that you and Jesus are headed for great things unless your day didn't go well today. Come on now. Fight for the few. Fight for it like one of David's mighty fighting men. Fight for it like you were defending the food supply of your people because you are. Fight for it like your hand was frozen to a sword because it's supposed to be. Fight for it like you looked at the odds that were around you, 800 men, and you said, me and God are a majority. Fight for it. This story ends really, really well. 
but it's not over yet. We're in the middle of the story, and we're standing in the middle of a field. And all we know is that the outcome has been promised, but the intermediate, it's still very indeterminate. Would y'all stand up? Homework. Review your notes. <laughs> We're not done with Levite marriage. We're not done with gleaning. We're certainly not done with Khalid. You need to review your notes. <laughs>